Hi everybody, welcome to ANZ's Agri Commodity Update for August 2021. Fantastic to be with you again. Um, my name's Mark Bennett, Head of Agribusiness here in Australia, and I'm joined by Michael Whitehead, Madeline Swan, Bryony Callender and Adelaide Timbrell as we cover key commodities and an economics update. We've been saying it for a little while now, that is, um, things are good and seem to be getting better even uh, from a seasonal perspective anyway. We continue to have a good run of commodity prices and it's this time of year that we're seeing spring spring into action nearly. Hint of green and yellow around the place and um, I think for some of the pockets of uh, regional Australia that had been missing out a bit of rain, particularly from a winter cropping perspective, uh, they've probably been held over for now at least. So just coming into that, coming into that critical spring period where we're getting uh, warmth and daylight and uh, needing a bit more moisture to see things through. But by all accounts, it's looking really great and um, profitability's coming through really strongly in the sector. Uh, one of the things we'd love to be doing at the moment and in coming months would be uh, to be out there in the field day uh, circuit. Um, there's still a few events uh, happily taking place in uh, Western Australia, but for the East Coast, it's pretty disappointing really that we can't get out to the major events the way we would normally catch up with people and a real pity that a lot of these communities and network can't come together in such a good time in many respects, but also to talk about the current times, the continuing COVID world and all of the issues at play. So we'd dearly love to be back in that with everybody as soon as we possibly can. It unfortunately feels like it's going to be a long way off. And if nothing else, um, if we can keep getting some better news in the background, it helps soften the blow. But uh, let's hope that everyone can hang in there and be financial and resilient enough to uh, bat up for, for next year. We are running and being involved in the odd digital event. Um, they're, they're really worthwhile and I think a great way of keeping the information flow moving, not quite the same as being face-to-face -face around the tables and in the paddocks and the tents as we um, celebrate um, the happenings in, in Agri in Australia. Um, but with all things going so well, we, we're going to run through uh, some key commodities specifically shortly. Um, but one of those continuing talking points is the price of rural land. And um, it just seems to be a new record or at least stronger at every sale and every turn. Um, it doesn't seem to be uh, a case that any pockets are missing out on this if that's a right expression, because you know, high prices uh, for land uh, make it difficult for some to either enter or grow. They're very welcome for those that are selling if the timing's suiting them, whether it's just an investment horizon coming to the end or whether it's a retirement that's being funded by a sale today that just looks so much better than it might have been a few years ago, then, then that, that's great. And look, that wealth um, is often maintained uh, regionally and locally, which is a really good thing as well. Pretty tough getting a return on your investment outside of farming these days, but that's another chapter. How high can prices go? Um, 
when will it end? Um, it's really hard to see, but it's, I mean, it's a combination of things that are driving this that I think are reasonably well documented. And you can look for pretty decent reasons why it may well continue to hold and rise. Um, as equally as there's always a part of you thinking, gee, everything looks so good at the minute. What would it be that would rain on this parade? Um, what do I need to be careful about? And I guess from my perspective, regardless of whether you think those things are a real near-term prospect, I think it in a time like this, it's more important than ever to just be making sure that you are running your business as well as you possibly can and using all the things that are available to you to drive down costs and maximise margins and do all the things that will hold your business in good stead. Should the price correction come, Could should the seasonal glitch come, could the should the COVID uh, interruption replay itself or, or surprise us somewhere along the way? Being able to self-manage through those times is really important. And it's by no means to say that businesses shouldn't grow and take advantage of perhaps the most profitable times you've ever seen. But investing in land is usually something that is investing in an asset for 20 or 30 or 40 or more years. And there's a whole lot that can happen through that period. And when you're buying at the top and funding at the bottom of, of um, finance costs, you know, we know those two things won't hold true generally for a long time, hopefully for a bit longer. But, um, but over 20 years, things will cycle and, um, and we need to be ready for that. So uh, that's a conundrum um, and, and um, a fantastic opportunity all at once. You still have to be more than glass half full, I think. Uh, because all the fundamentals are looking so good. But before we get into the commodities, uh, we might tackle rural land values more specifically, firstly, with Maddie. Um, Maddie, what's some of the, the detail behind the headlines here of our record farm price run? Yeah, it certainly is one of the most talked about topics at the moment, isn't it? So with Australian agricultural production doing incredibly well at the moment, really bucking that COVID trend, our commodity prices looking at really historically strong levels for almost every commodity. Basically, everyone at the kitchen table is talking about how high can farm prices go and how high is too high. Um, so in this edition, we've had a bit of a closer look at what those official statistics say um, has been happening to property values, what's driving it. And then we actually go on to have a look at what might that actually mean if Australian agricultural production gets to that magical $100 billion mark and what does that mean for farm values because we would expect them to move somewhat hand in hand. So looking at those official figures, those ones come from the Australian Bureau of Statistics and they're um, actually a compilation of um, each individual state's value of general figures. So they're the figures used for rates and, um, and those sort of things. So they could vary from state to state. We'll put that little uh, rider on it. Those, those figures have shown that Australia's rural land value is actually appreciated by over 30% um, in the last three years to June 2020 alone. And anecdotally, of course, that trend um, has very much continued in that last financial year. So there are a number of factors which are 
clearly driving that increase in farm values. The first one um, and most obvious one um, is interest rates and very, very low interest rates and interest rates um, move have moved very closely with rural land values and debt levels. So that's obviously a very strong factor driving farm values, but also commodity prices, profit levels, the drive towards farm consolidation, and also um, a relatively low number of farms actually available for sale. And that's obviously also a factor of strong commodity prices and good profit levels. So one of those sort of X factors in the market does appear to be the FOMO factor or the fear of missing out. Um, a lot of um, a, a lot of those sales that people are a little aghast at appear, and again anecdotally, to be um, coming out of neighbours desperate to snap up uh, properties that they don't think are going to come up on the market again. I mean, I, I know in my area that most sales are actually happening after long talks with farmers who've had um, properties for years and years and years. Um, and they were asked 10 years ago if they want to sell and they've only now just decided that they want to sell. So it's that sort of thing um, that's driving driving those really those higher values um, when properties actually do go up in the market. Um, so when we start looking at those factors, it's not really surprising that there's a little bit of nervousness about in the industries that those values are, and I'll put these in, in air quotes, um, out of control. So if we compare land values with commodity prices, with profit levels, historically they've always moved really uh, closely and in tandem. But that sort of broke around 2016 um, pre-drought um, when land values broke away from commodity prices and profits. Um, so and that. And really that break between commodity prices and profits has been the thing which has made a lot of the in, in the industry sort of scratch their head and say, well, is, is this land value increase sustainable? Is it right? Um, and is it something that we can expect a correction for later down the track? And, yeah, you have to say that, they, that, that looking at those figures alone, you might tend to think that there might be an element of, a, of, of overvaluation happening as such. But... If you take a step back and look at rural land values compared to other property-based assets across this, uh, Australia, that that um, it puts rural land in a really very, uh, very different light. So in recent years, rural land value growth has actually outperformed residential property growth by about an average of about 3% each year. Now, that comes from a very low base for rural land, but it does also include drought years. So until about the mid-2000s, Residential, commercial, and rural property had all shown fairly fairly similar growth rates, so none had had jumped away from each other. But, however, around about so 2010-ish, and these are rough rough years, um, residential and commercial pro property both jumped away markedly from rural property values. So, if we think about that, we can then actually start looking at the the growth in farm values as an element of catch up, as maybe external investors people who aren't necessarily in the agricultural industry uh, start looking at agricultural land as a good investment for the long term. And they're starting to actually start to catch up to those commercial properties and those, those residential properties. So with all of that in mind, we start looking at uh, what, what would it mean for, the Australian, for Australian farm values if we get to 2030 and we reach that $100 billion target that everyone's talking about. So that long-term relationship between agricultural output and land and land values actually suggests that we might that if we reach that hundred billion dollar level, um, the Australian total value of Australian agricultural land may reach almost four hundred and ninety billion. So that's almost a thirty percent increase on today today's values by twenty thirty. So, in general, while everyone uh, is generally happy about farm values, it gives us more 
in our in our in our wealth it gives us more to our bottom line it does actually come with some other impacts in, in in the way that it makes it difficult for new farmers to enter the market and makes it difficult to expand unless you have a really solid bottom line going ahead so whilst every while people are uh as I said, generally happy about those values, it's also worth looking at the, the flip side of what that might mean by 2030. Maddie, when you look at um, th these charts that people will see as they read the publication, they'll also see quite a close association between rural bank debt and rural property value. And we typically sort of have this market running at sort of 25% of debt against the value of land. Uh, we saw a really steep increase in debt uh, between 03 and 010 where the debt market pretty much doubled. And we're seeing another sharp increase from that sort of 2016-17 period to now um, following those land values. And I guess one of the things that will be on people's mind is are we um, still a really healthy sector carrying $87 billion of debt, you know, compared to $30 or $40 billion um, worth of debt uh, 15 years ago? And I guess an important bit that goes with that is the cost of the debt and uh, significantly lower from that time. Um, so at an operating level, we're seeing profitability. We're seeing strong commodity prices supporting that as well and growing value of output outside of the, the drought. But it, I mean, I, I guess it, it it says to me that um, there's probably through consolidation an element of farming that owes a lot of this debt that's going really well. Um, but carrying that debt into future years means that we're perhaps more exposed to financial costs if the interest rates rise. Um, the golden question, I suppose, is how quickly rates might rise and how far and what can people do in the meantime to mitigate that? And one of the answers is to repay debt. Um, but it seems to keep growing uh, in relation to the value of property, which makes it hard for people to determine is now still the right time to be buying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I won't, I'll leave the speculation on interest rates up to Adelaide. That's her bailiwick, obviously. But um, I think the thing to note is that it's it, it, we're talking about growth rates in land values as opposed to absolute values because it is uh, I haven't seen it in the data actually that we've ever seen an absolute decline in the value of farmland. So um, whilst the growth growth mightn't be as high if if interest rates increase, um, I find it very unlikely that we're going to have an across the board decline in value in in, in rural land values. So. Um, in that respect, yes, farmers, of course, will have to look to how they repay and it should be a normal part of their their forward planning to look to how they repay that debt, those debt levels. Um, but there is a certain, a certain element um, of not security, I wouldn't say security, but surety that comes with having land values at this level and bank debt, which is as a percentage of land values, is it, is it really historically fairly decent levels? Yeah, look, I think the health feels really strong still from where I'm sitting um, and it will be individual choices that drive these things. And if people make good decisions for their businesses, um, things will generally hold on really quite well. So we look forward to that. And by the way, I don't think I've ever seen the rural uh, debt market go down in a single year. <laughs> 
I'd have to check that, but maybe stabilised at, at worse, I reckon. But um, yeah. anyway, there's a lot of good use for, for um, cheapish money right now, it would seem, just a matter of watching your own individual circumstances, I think. Um, with that, um, not necessarily how does the, the grain um, sector link to rural land values, but how are things travelling? Oh, it seems to me that, um, that wheat and canola prices especially um, are looking really strong uh, our production year looks really good and taking advantage potentially of um, some stumbling on Northern Hemisphere production, uh, where are things right now? Yeah, absolutely. You sort of get, um, a little, not certainly not sick of saying this, but we seem to be saying it a lot. Things are looking pretty good and haven't really looked much better than they're looking for for um, for the cropping industry at the moment. So we'll start with the global outlook because that really is, as always, what's driving, um, driving most of Australian prices. Um, so globally, we're obviously having a lot of uh, production downgrades from uh, Canada in particular, but also the US from that heat dome and other drought events that happened recently. So we've had a really marked uh, step back in, in, in production levels there. We've also had a lot of... Um, uh, uh, frost and winter, uh, harsh winter events for the Russian crops. So that's also caused um, fairly marked downgrades in their in their both their total crop uh, levels, but also for the um, the quality of the crop coming out of Russia in particular. So that's also offset by upgrades in uh, the outlook for the Australian crop, for the EU crop, and also for the Ukraine crop, which is looking to looking fairly good. Uh, so if we look look to see how that translates into prices, global wheat prices are currently up 43% on this time last year. Canola prices are up 78% on this time last year. And corn and feed grain and so forth is up 65% on this time last year. So that really sort of puts into perspective just how um, how much those those right backs in um, in Northern America and Russia are having are impacting the market, and how a lot of buyers are out there looking to buy at any cost. Um, so to off, to offset that, um, not surprising, this seems to happen every year. But we're forecasting record consumption uh, globally. A lot of that's coming out of an increase in residual use um, in the EU and in Russia. Um, feed grain is also being uh, uh, prices are also being supported by cuts to the forecast corn and barley crop, again, as a result of that US drought. Um, so we're looking pretty good across the board um, when it comes to, the to those uh, global prices. Uh, how's that translating into the Australian market? Um, so if we, again, to look at look at on a bare cost basis, so milling wheat's um, up 27% on this time last year. Canola's up 28% on this last year, and that, that's now sitting at over $800 a tonne, which is pretty wonderful um, levels. So uh, to add to that, we're looking at a so, – so far, early in the piece um, as such, but looking at a very strong harvest, not as strong as last year, not surprisingly. We can't really expect to get that every year, but certainly above – far above average – um, the early USDA reports are saying about 30 million tonnes of wheat um, for, for this Australian harvest, but, you know, you have to expect that to move around quite a bit uh, going forward. So with all of that, what, if any, are the um, black clouds on the horizon? One is a bit of a, a silver lining and, and a black cloud is the freight rates. Global freight rates have gone through the roof recently. Uh, a lot of that's because of lack of supply of um, shipping uh, going backwards and forwards. What that's that? 
while that seems like a bad thing, it's actually not not such a bad thing for Australia because it makes the Black Sea regions wheat coming into the Asian region a lot more expensive. So that's seeing a lot of the Asian buyers turn back to Australia to find their to find their wheat supply. And that has also meant that the Chinese market, which had turned away from us from for, for quite some time as a result of the the Australian China trade dispute or quandary, um, China's also coming back to source their wheat supply from Australia. So that's a good thing. Perhaps the only real downside going on is, is fertiliser prices at the moment. So there's a sh- been uh, a number of production shutdowns in Saudi Arabia, which have meant that fertiliser prices have gone through the roof. Uh, for many, many producers, they're saying it's just not worth buying um, fertiliser at the moment for the cost. Um, and so at a time when a lot of people would really be looking to look, put a lot of nutrients back into their soil after a good good year this year and expected good year last year and an expected good year this year, um, those fertiliser prices are looking far too expensive to do that for, for the foreseeable future. And you add to that the fact that China has recently informally suspended exports um, out of China and is focusing on uh, using their domestically produced fertiliser for local producers, it looks like that might last for some time. Yeah, the business of, um, you know, controlling inputs for self-sufficiency is interesting. Um, China have been a big and a probably a surprise buyer in the market for wheat, it would seem. Um, it'd be interesting to, to consider the gross margin analysis for a lot of grain growers uh, this season. Um, with really high costs, it still might um, provide an incentive um, if commodity prices are holding so true and whether there's upside in in crop failure in the Northern Hemisphere or not um, remains to be seen as well. So pretty interesting times. I, I guess it's also pretty hard to guess our own crop really. I mean, it, it, it could look better, but it could look a lot worse at this point. Um, there is so long to go though, really, um, in the season. It's probably not until we're more uh, halfway through spring that we've got a clearer idea of, of our total um, crop prediction, but pretty good times. And you would think anywhere near average yield, uh, very profitable conditions for most of our grain growers. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of, in a strange way, it's a bit of a flip on last year with the uh, record harvest and fairly good prices. This at the moment is looking at really good prices and a fairly good crop. So it's nothing to complain about. It's a good follow-up. Um, that would probably be the main the main thing. So a couple of years in a row for a lot of grain farmers, or even three, uh, a real chance to consolidate, put some money away, um, and uh, position well for the next thing in their farm businesses. So let's hope things hold well for the grains industry for the next few months. Thanks, Maddie. Uh, that's a grains wrap. Uh, we might go to you now, if we can, please, Michael, to consider the beef story um, looking a bit repetitive um, as well here, I would suggest, but in a really good way. It's an interesting one, Mark. Absolutely right. It is repetitive and perhaps has been for at least the last 18 months, maybe two years, when we talk about prices going to a new level and wondering how long they can stay there. And then two months later, we say the same thing again. And this month, uh, things aren't any different. We see the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, the industry benchmark number, once again breaking north through that 1,000-point mark. It's wavered around it, uh, but it's now been there for at least a month or so. 
it is interesting with the beef market and the cattle market that it continues to stay strong to look at why and then look at what could happen as a result. Why is it doing this? No great surprise to anyone in the industry. The fact that the rain continues to be good in most cattle producing parts of Australia, so the grass is terrific, people are continuing to rebuild their herds after the drought, good grass means that your feed input costs are way down, and that continues to push the restocker activity. At the other end of that is that great fundamental that drives everything in agriculture, and it is demand, demand, demand. There is confidence that the demand for red meat, domestically but particularly offshore, will stay strong. So it's that optimism by so many restockers that's continuing to drive that as well. It is interesting to look at the fact that the the input uh, in terms of who's driving it, whether restockers, feedlotters or processors changes it, um, but it does largely continue to be those restockers. It's also good to take one step back and to think that while this is very good news for people who are selling cattle and getting those high prices, what does this actually mean? The fact that prices have effectively doubled in the last 18 months. And if you run any kind of business where your main input doubles in price in 18 months, then that can't not have an impact on a whole lot of businesses and the industry as a whole. This effectively means that if the price of cattle has doubled in 18 months, then at some point that has got to flow through in some way to the end point. Now, the price of red meat on shelves hasn't doubled in 18 months. So this is being borne by a few parts of the industry. This is undeniably making it harder for your smaller restockers. And what will be the impact of this going forward? Will this speed up consolidation? Or will this mean that some smaller cattle operators say that perhaps they're going to turn to more cropping or to more sheep if it gets too tough? For processes as well, and particularly for some of the smaller processes whose pockets aren't that deep, will they be able to maintain buying at this high price when they can't pass on all those costs, particularly to supermarkets, to butchers and to exporters as well? So this will play out, particularly if the high prices continue. Just on the, the last point is obviously to look at that biggest market for Australian beef, and that's the export side. Now, there is bad news on this, which is actually good news. The bad news is that exports are down on what they have been in the past. The good news is that even if Australia, this is driven by tight supply, if we had twice as much beef available on the market at the moment, Australia could sell that beef. Japan's gone back to being the biggest market, South Korea second, and the US and China, as the traditional other two that make up the top four, continue to have strong demand for Australian beef. And in terms of Argentina and the impact of the Argentine restrictions on beef exports, and then even with them picking up their beef exports again, meaning less of a supply and a less reliable supply to major markets, particularly China, this has benefited Australia because Australia continues to be the most reliable big producer and big exporter of beef in the world. And all things being equal, if we are, uh, let's call it three years from being back towards 30 million head of cattle with a whole range of things having to hold true for that. Um, we're feeling confident, are we, that 
that um, import demand will be strong enough uh, to keep paying the price as our numbers rebuild? That's probably changed after what happened with Argentina. So absolutely, the demand that was coming, particularly from China, had seen Australia losing market share and losing market share to the big South American players, Argentina, Brazil, to a degree, Uruguay and even Paraguay as well. But if there is going to be resurgent consumer demand in a lot of markets uh, as they adjust to COVID, don't want to say post-COVID, but uh, adjust to that reality, and if there is uncertainty that uh, the meat supply will always be available from South America, then yes, despite the high prices, it's likely that export demand will stay there for a while. The other side to it is the recent weakening in the Australian dollar from what it was forecast to be hasn't hurt exports at all either. No, and we need rain, don't we? I mean, I guess um, the one thing that would get in the way of the rebuild, of course, would be failed season and, and cattle needing to be uh, quit. And um, I guess this is on the minds of um, of the restockers and rebuilders at the minute, um, needing to buy in at this price through a, through a bit of a cycle. Um, you know, whether holding on will be their ability to, to hold and grow weights and, and sell back into a good market again. Absolutely. And as, as we've seen, the Australian good weather to drought cycle moves far more quickly than the big beef competitors, than the Brazilians or the North Americans as well. So just as we talked about with the grain side of things, need to keep an eye on when the weather will change again and how to prepare for that. Thanks, Michael. Okay, so moving from beef to dairy, another, well, it hasn't been the continual sort of success period in dairy that we've seen in beef, but briny, uh, dairy's almost in uh, record high territory again. Fantastic to see what's um, what's making the difference. Yeah, things are looking pretty good for dairy, like with many of the other commodities as well. The good seasonal conditions are continuing. Uh, there's more pasture on the ground for grazing. There's also cheaper feed prices as well. So uh, that's Im improving profitability for farmers. Um, and then of course, there's the opening farm gate prices, which were up quite considerably this year. And we also saw that lead into a bit of a bidding war. So things are looking pretty good in that on that aspect. So whilst things are, are looking profitable for dairy farmers, uh, unfortunately, we are still seeing that farmers are leaving the industry. And that's got to do with a lot of things, partly because of the demand for property, as Maddie was talking about earlier. There's a lot of different players looking to take on that really good quality land that dairy farmers have. Um, so whether it's the strong price for beef or other demands coming in, uh, far, other farmers coming into the market or, uh, or, or dairy farmers looking to change over to other production. So Sadly, uh, whilst we're seeing the number of farms decline, as well as the overall farm area decline, even the average area of farms has declined over the last few years. That did increase slightly a few years ago. However, um, that's sort of come off a little bit. So in terms of total production, if we're in that sort of eight and a half to nine billion litres mark, perhaps on a more sustainable footing, what do you think it means for the outlook for our industry, particularly as we're a much more domestic orientated market than we were uh, 10 years ago? 
Yeah, the local demand for cheese and, and other dairy products is still really strong. So although we hear of a lot of uh, alternative milks coming into the market, the demand for dairy milk is still really strong. And in some cases, it's increased, particularly over this past COVID period, we've seen demand for uh, high-end uh, dairy product, branded cheese, that sort of thing increase. So it's interesting to get an understanding of where that demand's coming from. It's it's people who are looking to connect more with the farmer who's producing those products. It's farm to table. It's uh, possibly just splashing out on a nice cheese platter while they're staying home rather than heading out to dinner. So there's been a real shift in consumer demands in, in the whole dairy aspect. Uh, Bryony, do you think that um, you, you mentioned alternative milks, which is an interesting um, turn of phrase, I guess. Um, I suppose we're talking about products that uh, imitate the, um, the look and feel of, of dairy as we've known it. Um, the brand story is an interesting one where people are pursuing brands um, and being and looking to pay premiums for, for product. Maybe that's strongly COVID related. Maybe there's an underlying trend, but uh, do you see competition from non-dairy dairy, dairy um, influencing uh, the demand uh, that we're seeing in our industry at the moment? So a lot of the people who are going for the alternative milks are looking uh, at, at it being a healthy option. So it's interesting to sort of understand what, what healthy means. Is it uh, healthier to have plant-based? In some cases, maybe it will be. But in other cases, when you're looking at a dairy farmer, you know exactly where um, on those farm-to-table product lines, where the, where the product is coming from, as opposed to potentially a really highly processed plant-based product. So there is a real difference there. And, and so I think the trend will go in two different directions. There'll be people who are really, really just want to get into the plant-based or people who are going down that more uh, whole foods type direction. So either way, it seems like the, the demand for dairy isn't going to drop anytime soon. No, which, which is fantastic. And, and back on the farm, uh, times of high grain prices typically um, spell uh, a problem for, for margins in dairy farming. Um, particularly those obviously that feed more heavily in the bale. But I guess with a season or two now um, that have been pretty strong, there's ample and better fodder reserves in place and good fresh season grass in front of a lot of dairy farms. So um, the profitability, regardless of whether you're producing to um, a big processor or to something more uh, bespoke, uh, it looks pretty good both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, more grass on the ground and improved grazing conditions is absolutely helping the profitability of the farms if they can lengthen the amount of time um, grazing rather than uh, grain feeding, then that's going to help them out. Good to see price and availability of water helping somewhat in there as well. Thanks, Bryony, for the dairy summary. Um, might move back to you now if we can, please, Michael, and we'll tackle sheep. Uh, which is a bit more like the beef story of recent times. It's still going pretty well. It is going very well, Mark. And 
we've talked about the fact that just about every commodity has done well out of the rain and the rain in most parts of Australian areas for grain and for cattle as well. You could almost put a case that sheep have done better out of good rain than any of the other main sectors. Why would this be the case? Because good rain right from the start of the year has meant that the ewes were in a better condition than they were obviously over the past couple of years. This has meant that they were healthier right through their pregnancies. They've given birth to healthier lambs. We're going to see heavier weights in lambs as well. We saw better lambing percentages from healthy ewes. At the same time, if you combine these healthy animals and bigger numbers with very good uh, lamb prices and mutton prices as well, well, things, as you say, are very good for the sheep sector as well. One interesting thing, and every time we look at how well things are going, we look to the future, is to look at what's happened in the past with the lamb industry and the sheep industry when meat prices have been very high. We talked about cattle just before, and when those prices get high, they have a habit, particularly over recent years, of staying high for a while. Sheep have the ability, or the sheep industry, to react and try and take advantage of those high prices by pushing supply onto the market. So high prices have in the past often seen a fairly swift reduction after that. In 2019, for example, when we saw lamb prices peak at around the same point they are now, they fell pretty steadily after hitting that peak, down 30% in the next six months. Therefore, what will be interesting to see in the coming months, two, three or four months or so, will we see more lambs coming onto the market than we had expected? And will that start to push prices down, not to bad levels, but just from where they are at the moment? And also with mutton prices being particularly good based on that export demand, particularly Chinese and US demand, are we likely to see a lot of producers seeking to take advantage of that and push them onto the market? So price is good at the moment. Let's just see how big the supply is and the impact on price in the next couple of months. Yeah, because in in the flock numbers, they're looking, well, it feels like you could carry a lot more sheep without really impacting price still. Um, but we're not on a consistent rebuild pattern by the look of it yet, are we? I wonder if that's season, but now we've had a couple of decent seasons, the flock number's up a little, but is it purely about um, farmers, um, you know, cashing in on the continuing high prices and not necessarily looking to rebuild significantly? It's an interesting one. And if we accept that we have close to a steady amount of land that particularly farmers are balancing between sheep, between cropping and between cattle as well, while there is an incentive on, on its own to lift sheep numbers, and we saw them get down to a almost a record low of 64 million in 2020, 64 million head, uh, they're heading back up to around that 68, 69 million at the moment. But if producers are at the same time doing well out of their cattle and doing well out of their grain, and they, they're very good at running sheep, but they are used to the volatility in sheep, is the incentive not there to lift the flock at a drastic rate? Uh, so there are a number of reasons why it may see some slight upward growth, but we shouldn't hold our breath waiting for it to rocket up again. No, and even if you consider the 2000s um, period, that first decade, um, sheep really gave way to machinery when it came to the cropping scale. 
phenomenon and um, with money back in cropping that might test some of the mixed farmers. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, the other half of sheep, of course, is wool and um, it's in pretty strong territory, not at its high, but it's certainly um, up from the bottom of recent cycles. Uh, what's going with wool? I see the selling season just sort of kicked off again. Um, what could everyone expect? Absolutely. The selling season took its, its few week break as it does this time of year and came back uh, slightly down on what it was, but still we're, we're well up on where it was about six months ago or so. It is strong and it's a, it's a great relief for producers, wool producers who were worried about where things were six months ago. It is in a way tied to where the sheep meat prices are at the moment because it appears that there is still a lot of wool being held back from market, either withdrawn from sale or sitting in sheds or auction houses because a lot of uh, sheep producers don't have to sell. If they're getting good enough prices for their mutton and good enough prices for their lamb, they can afford to hold back. There are the fundamentals for wool out there. The European winter is always one that we talk about. And as the buyers come back into the market, ready to buy for the, the processing and the manufacture for garments for the European winter, arguably a lot of that has already flowed through the market, but there will still be consumer demand for wool products as countries recover economically from the initial shocks of COVID. So supply reasonably tight, but the market knows it's being held back. Wool is always volatile. And for those of us who've been in the industry for decades, we, we sort of get used to the, these ups and downs as well. So expect a, a supply of wool to stay under the market and cautious optimism once again that it stays there. Two interesting points out of that. Certainly the economy's uh, in the process of recovering for consumers to buy a lot of wool garments but what will be the long-term impact on suits? If the world goes back to working more from home rather to offices, will that have an impact? Although we're seeing people going back to offices in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe and the US. One other interesting point, and wool growers particularly will identify with this, it has been the impact on skins. For so many wool growers, having skins in your shed has been a, a side part of your business, a small part, but one that's been omnipresent as well. And while skins had gone down to a very low level over the past few years, as synthetic materials competed with skins for shoes, for furniture, for other, for other areas there, on the back of the Goodwill prices, we are finally seeing skin prices go up again. So that'll be a, a nice bit on the side for, for some producers with a few of those in their sheds. Thanks, Michael. Well, economics on top of mind for, for many at the minute, particularly because of, well, the way in farming we closely follow exchange rates and interest rates. But, of course, we've got uh, resurgent uh, COVID numbers impacting our, our local economy and it's hard to see how this plays through to the rest of the world as well um, but with our lockdowns here it's probably got, got us guessing uh, to an extent um, welcome to the podcast adelaide um, how do you how do you see things playing out at the moment noting that we are in really uncertain times one of the biggest changes to our economic outlook is that the Delta variant uh, has really changed the way that we have to view lockdowns. So this is something that's not just the case in Australia, but we are seeing it 
uh, all over the world. There's been new restrictions. And what's really uh, interesting about the Delta variant is that there are actually new local restrictions in areas with high vaccination rates. So the vaccinations are not necessarily going to get us out of lockdowns immediately. For example, in Iceland, 86% of the population is vaccinated, um, but it is still having restrictions and healthcare issues due to Delta. So it's this is a really big health crisis. Uh, and of course, it's going to be impacting the economy as well. Although the actual strain of COVID is uh, a little bit worse than the first one in terms of its transmissibility and in terms of the lockdown impacts, the actual economic impacts aren't necessarily worse. So what's really a positive for 2021 and for our current situation compared to last year is that people understand um, how to operate in a lockdown and COVID environment a lot better. So we've got uh, the government is, you know, happy to spend money. People are expecting fiscal support. This really helps with confidence. And although consumer confidence has dipped due to the current Sydney lockdown and the Melbourne lockdown as well, um, it's still much, much higher than it was during the initial lockdowns. And for business confidence and, condition, and conditions, it's the same thing. You know, businesses are feeling a little bit more uncertain than they were a few months ago, but they're still feeling far, far better than they were in 2020. And a lot of businesses and households alike have already transitioned to a lifestyle and an operation approach that is more uh, resilient to lockdowns. For example, you know, we're not losing out on um, international tourism-related business the way that we were last year because that transition has already happened for many people. We're not um, transitioning to work from home the way we were last year because a lot of that transition has already happened. We are set up much better, and that's something that has saved um, some of the economic loss this time around. Um, we know that this is also, you know, of course, um, still going to have an economic impact. We still expect that there will be a, a negative result for the September quarter when it comes to GDP. Uh, and now with um, our new outlook that these lockdowns are likely to be rolling on through to 2022, that the recovery will be slower than we initially thought. Um, as I said, though, you know, fiscal support is expected and the government has been happy to spend money. So we do think that'll continue and that'll be really critical to the way people respond and businesses respond to those rolling lockdowns over the next 12 months. Um, look, the uh, RBAs, Ellis put it um, in a recent speech perfectly, in a big shift, people adapt. When the crisis is over, people bounce back. And when policy supports, people respond. So we're not only um, thinking that we will see more fiscal support, but we also think we'll see some monetary support as well. Um, in the most recent monetary policy decision, the Reserve Bank said that they wouldn't be delay delaying tapering of their quantitative easing program, meaning they would be slowly tightening up some of those mechanisms that will create higher fixed rates for mortgages and business loans. But that is something that has become more uncertain as the Delta variant has, you know, rocked Australia and created all of these lockdowns. We may see that as the impacts of these lockdowns become broader, 
that we see monetary policy come back in as an option. If it does, that's going to be something that really um, makes it a lot more concrete that we will see a lower exchange rate in the longer term. At the moment, the Australian dollar uh, we forecast will be around the 78 USD mark, um, 78 cents mark for the US dollar over the course of next year. We were thinking it would be higher, but now we're thinking 78 cents. And with the risk to monetary policy being towards it potentially being more accommodative in Australia, this could even go a little lower when we think about the risk profile of that forecast. So there are some positives, you know, businesses are have transitioned to being more resilient to COVID, households, while their confidence has dipped, is much higher than it was last year. Our exchange rate is likely to be kept lower by some of the new policy developments. Uh, and we may also see a, a good bounce back eventually as we get Australia vaccinated and as we find a way to avoid coming into these rolling lockdowns in the longer term. All right, thank you everybody for listening in today. We hope that's um, given you something to think about. If you have any questions on any of it, you're more than welcome to reach out uh, to myself and, and our team. Um, and that includes our, um, our people around the countryside as we uh, look to service the needs of Australian agriculture for their financial needs at least. So. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, look forward to talking in a couple of months where we'll be really in the thick of um, spring and be much closer to what our winter crop estimates are looking like especially. So until then, um, hope to talk to you soon. That's it for us today. Mm -hmm.